You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Chelsea. And today we're going to talk about Dawn Mazzino. I want to give a shout out to Cordelia. She's the one who gave me the idea for this one. This is local to me, and I actually never heard of this case. So Dawn was a 23-year-old woman who was known as being the kindest and loving person everyone in the immediate area of Wayne knew. Dawn had special needs but was working her way to becoming independent. She was extremely active in overcoming her situation by making regimented schedules and keeping in constant communication with her support system, which included her family and her boyfriend. Dawn had attended the Devereaux Day School and graduated. I have heard of the school and they offer a couple programs, but I believe she went to the Devereaux Mapleton School Program in Malvern since they only lived in Wayne, which is only about a 20-minute drive. Basically, it helps children with autism spectrum disorders and supports each student to become productive, becoming socially appropriate, and help assimilate into being part of the community. Now, I will say that in the past five years, I've been hearing some awful stories regarding Devereaux. I'm part of a special needs Facebook group called Mainline Special Needs Parents, which may I say is a fantastic group with a lot of knowledgeable parents with kids who have all different and vast diagnoses. Anywho, in the beginning of this year, there was a federal class action lawsuit filed against Devereaux claiming the nonprofit was negligent and didn't protect at least six children that ended up being abused by staff. That's literally my worst fear, being a mom of a kid with autism that's somewhat nonverbal, like him to get abused and not have any idea. It's definitely hard. My son, Landon, had told me that one of his teachers, who unfortunately we knew I grew up across the street from him, had said something that he was not comfortable with. And when I brought it up, the guidance counselor brought us in, me and Landon, and she was talking to us. And not only did Landon repeat what the teacher said, but said it in the same tone. And he was almost like screaming. And the guidance counselor like ended our meeting right there and then and basically said Landon misunderstood and kind of left it at that, which is like, in my opinion, like super shitty and definitely didn't leave me feeling very happy. Yikes. I mean, kids can misunderstand things and I fully get that. But... You also, if you are a teacher, saying this as a teacher, probably shouldn't be screaming things at kids that can get misinterpreted poorly. I mean, you, I mean, you know, kids can always interpret things however they want. So you always run that chance of someone misunderstanding what you said. But from the sounds of it, it sounds like there was some elevated voice in there, which... There's no reason that you ever need to scream at a child in the classroom. So, yeah, I I don't like that. Yeah, it didn't go very well. And when we made it apparent and I was like almost like on the verge of like sending him with like a recorder, even though that's like illegal, um, just because I was so worried, like when you're sending your kid to school, you're not there. You don't know what's happening. Like Amanda said. They might not be, you know, they might not understand every situation. It's just terrifying to worry about sending your kid to school. That that shouldn't be a worry for a parent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as Amanda said, there is potential that there are more children because some of these children might not have understood the situation or couldn't fully be able to communicate that something had happened. 
The lawsuit claims that between 2003 and 2019, the students ranging in age from 8 to 17 were abused. Out of the six students, three of them were from Chester County, which is where I believe the school Dawn went to is in. From all I can find, Dawn flourished in this day school and had no issues. She went on to graduate from Marpleville Tech School, which is in Broomall. Right after graduating, she went to work as a dietary aide at Paoli Memorial Hospital. She worked there a couple years until 1986 when she left to help her sister who was in a motorcycle accident. She felt she was needed at home, but when her sister got better, she took a job at Bryn Mawr Hospital within the food services department. It was when she was leaving work at Bryn Mawr Hospital on May 22, 1989, after a shift at work, when she went missing. While researching, multiple times were referenced, but the most common time was that she left at 3. Dawn didn't drive, and she relied on public transportation. She left work to meet her boyfriend of four years, Dan Cobb, where they were to go to a Special Olympics practice at the local Bryn Mawr YMCA. Dan also had some developmental disabilities like Dawn. Dawn loved the Special Olympics and she was an avid runner and also played soccer. Now there was another discrepancy on the day she went missing. I found while researching that she was supposed to meet Dan at the train station versus meeting him directly at the Y. Either way, her mother Diane was getting nervous the later it was getting in the evening without hearing from Dawn. When Dawn didn't show up at her expected time, Diane decided to see if she had any messages on her answering machine. Dan had called and left a message asking why Dawn never showed up. I read in one article, Diane and her other daughter, Kathy, drove to the hospital to see if they could get answers. They talked to the security guards and coworkers. They could only confirm that they had seen Dawn working, but didn't know the exact time she had left. When they couldn't get answers from her place of employment, they called the police to report her missing. Unlike so many other cases we hear about, the police immediately moved into action for the fact that she was special needs always kept in communication and followed a regimented schedule. Given that this was 1989, I am doubly impressed that they did this. Not only did they hop right on a missing persons case, but it was 1989 and they hopped right on a missing persons case. Like most of the cases we cover, we don't see this. So I, I love that we're seeing it in this case. Yes. And later on, the mom says that she was just so happy how supportive the police and the community was with them. So police and volunteer firefighters searched over three counties, which were Montgomery, Chester, and Delaware. They brought in track dogs. Police crawled through underground pipes and professional divers volunteered to drag local ponds. There was even a helicopter searching from above for any sign of Dawn. No evidence was found of what could have happened to her. Police then took her journals, date book, and notes. They also asked the family to compile a list of all of her acquaintances, and the family ended up producing 74 names, which the police began interviewing, which I thought was strange. I've never heard police asking a family for, like, a set list of acquaintances. 74 people? That's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. I feel like you see that a lot on TV shows, but I can't think of another case, at least not that we've covered, where they've gone to the family and asked for a list of acquaintances. It makes sense, but 74 is quite a list. It is. There's just so much work. It's not like you can open Facebook and be like, hey, these are all my acquaintances. Right. And I'm sure, like, probably the parents didn't know all the people's last names. They're probably, like, coworkers she had, you know, mentioned, or I'm not sure. But it's a long list. That's true. Now, everyone they interviewed said that Dawn was the sweetest person, though a lot of them said she was too trusting and naive. Her supervisor said that she was the ideal employee. 
When police were talking with another employee, the employee told the police they saw Dawn after her shift that day at the train station while the employee was sitting at a red light near the station. At first, they hadn't thought anything of it because Dawn looked comfortable. She was talking to a man in a car, and before this employee drove off, they saw Dawn willingly getting into the car. This was the first piece of evidence the police received. This employee later picked out Thomas Haskins out of a photo lineup, though I couldn't find out how he ended up on the police radar. I mean, I guess just a description of the car that could be kind of narrowed down. I wonder if his car was unique or if the employee remembered like any part of the uh, license plate or anything like that that would have led to it. Chelsea, this makes me think of the post you made about Landon, about stranger danger earlier (laughs) and, you know, having her being trusting and naive. And then that could also be why the list of names was so long, because she just kind of made friends that quickly. But that's what it means. Hey, want to be my friend? Yeah. 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 In the Walmart. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. It's sad, but it's true. I literally just made that post. I didn't even think of that, but that is so true. I was wondering if this is partly what made you think of it, but I actually, from that, that special needs mainline group that I mentioned earlier in this episode, someone had posted it and I felt so strongly with it because we recently went on vacation and my brother-in-law is not a fan of that, like talking to people. And it's not just like saying, hi, how are you? It's like, Hey, I'm Landon. Do you want to be my friend? Touching people. He touches people. And, um, we went on vacation with my sister and brother-in-law and they were like, he was freaking out the entire time. And he's like, you need to have a talk with him. I was like, it's like a daily thing. My man, like you talk to him. My sister talks to him. I talk to him. Doesn't work. He just loves everyone. It's, I don't know why I hate everyone. It's a, it's very, very strange, (laughs) very different for me. I mean, same. If you shared your, your phone or your iPad with my kid, he would be gone in an instant. Like he, he has no stranger danger. He would take the candy from the van. Yeah, it's it's scary. And I guess this is like another example of why it's so scary. Yeah. Well, sorry to tie those two together. That's just what it made me think of. (laughs) It's okay. Um, It's hard. You do think of worst case scenarios when you have kids with special needs. Like you have to think 10 times in advance of what you're going to do. I mean, we used to have a bracelet with Logan's name on it and his address and that he had autism and... We have sensors on our doors that go off if you open them, like not just like obviously an alarm system, but like if you just open them, they chime so that we get an alert on our phone because we never know if he's going to leave. Yeah. Wow. I, as Landon has gotten older, I like start worrying about other things. Landon is very handsy and it's not like to be like inappropriate. He likes pressure. So not only hands, but his body, like I always say he's like... It's like he's melting. He'll like literally just like somehow become liquid and all over you. And um, it's cute now. But when he is like a grown adult and he's trying to touch someone or hold someone's hand or hug them, he got in trouble at school for trying to kiss someone on like the cheek. And it's not that he's doing it inappropriately or he's like trying to be sexual. It's just how he shows love. But now I have to worry Like, how many times are people going to call the cops on him because they don't understand? And that is something that's becoming more real as he gets older because he's huge. He's almost as tall as me. So it's scary. Like, everything is so scary having a special needs kid. But (laughs) 
Uh, sorry for veering off, but Thomas Haskins was a previous coworker of Dawn's. They had worked together at Paoli. Thomas admitted that he had given her rides home multiple times when they were working together, but adamantly refused he had given her a ride the day she went missing. Diane had said that Dawn was trying to help Thomas get a job at Bryn Mawr because he was either fired or had quit the job that him and Dawn shared together. He even admitted he would give her rides when he would see her at bus stops. The other problem was he would give other past employees rides home too. The police searched his car and did find fibers that matched the uniform that Dawn had to wear. The problem with the fibers was that they couldn't tell how long they had been there. I'm really glad you threw that second part in there because I think it's this common thought just kind of in the public that, oh, well, they found fibers that matched up with her. So he must be, you know, a a suspect or he must have done it. Well, I mean, if they worked together and he gave her other rides home, I mean, there's no way at this point in time, at least that I'm aware of, to pull a fiber and say, oh, that's been in the car for 20 hours versus that's been in the car for a year and a half. I mean, like, I don't vacuum my car. I clean it out. I don't vacuum my car very often. So there could be fibers in there from people that were in my car a year and a half or two years ago. So I like that you did clarify that, you know, like they couldn't tell how long they were there. So we can't really use it as evidence for or against him. We can just say that, yeah, at some point she was in his car, but we don't know if it was that recently. And I tried to find, like, research on it, too, like, to see, like, nowadays if there's, like, any way that they can tell or anything. And really, there's not, like, it doesn't, like, break down, like, the fibers, it doesn't, like, break down or anything. And so, yeah. Plus, I'm pretty sure that even now, and I know, you know, at least back then, they can, you can only tell if the fiber is microscopically similar to another So it's hard to give definite answers about whether it matches a particular piece of clothing. Plus, if he's giving other employees rides home, who's to say that it's not someone else that works there? Good point. And even if it was a different, like, hospital, they all wear scrubs or they all probably wear something similar by the same brand, so... Who's to say that it's not something like that? Yeah, that's why I really wanted to throw in the fact that he had said that he gave other employees rides as well because, like, it it isn't a definite that it's hers. Now, Thomas Haskins was bad news, and if the entire family knew how dangerous he was, I doubt she would have been allowed to be around him. He was a 26-year-old man who at the time was out on parole for being a convicted murderer. Cool. I think it's great when convicted murderers get parole, like, he was only 26, so clearly he hadn't served too much time. Um, like, was he under 18? I know we're not diving into everything he did, but was he under 18 when he murdered someone that maybe he got a lesser sentence? Or was it just life in the 80s? Hold on, give me a second. Um, so, yeah, he was under 18. Okay. Then I guess that makes a little bit more sense. But <laughs> Not much. Yeah, not much. Like not much. And I guess it would depend exactly. I don't know what his birthday is. So it was just on the cusp of being 18. Plus, I'm sorry to skip ahead. I just remember from reading it that the victim was black, correct? Yeah. So I'm wondering if that had anything to do with the short sentence, honestly. Touche. That is another possibility, unfortunately. 
but we'll talk more about this. Uh, in 1980, that's when he murdered this 15-year-old girl in Reading. Um, trigger warning. He raped, strangled, and stabbed her in the neck with a paint scraper. And her name was Karen Stubbs. He had uh, locked her in a room to die alone. She wasn't dead when he left. Uh, and this was in the apartment complex that his parents lived in. Like the same apartment or just no, within the same complex? complex. Yeah, okay. same complex. Okay. Uh, he ended up only serving five years in prison before being put out on parole in 86. Wow. And clearly this is not someone you would want to be spending time with. So I get that he was under 18, but five years for murdering a child. It's crazy. Yeah, that's horrible. And it gets worse because only two weeks after the disappearance of Dawn, Thomas murdered his 14-year-old cousin, Andrea Nicole Thomas. What is wrong with him? Yeah, a lot. Good <laughs> Lord. So here, wow. yeah, it's crazy. And here's another trigger warning. She was strangled to death with a telephone and electrical wire, found nude except for a bra pulled above her chest. There were puncture wounds in her back and a two-pronged fork that was bent found nearby. Yikes. Yeah, it's insane. And there's there was more to it, but I mean, it pretty much paints the picture what I said, how brutal it was. And there was more. And it's really strange because I could not find a lot of information on Karen Stubbs. But for Andrea, there was like a huge um, list from like the court. So I was able to find more information. Um, But she was found by her aunt who returned to Thomas's parents' house. So this happened in his parents' house um, in the apartment complex. Which is crazy. Um, wow. Her, he had covered her body with a blanket and put a pillow over her head. And really, all I have to say is, like, I feel bad for his parents because you don't want to have a, a child that murders someone and then in your house and another family, it blows my mind. I think it's interesting that we know he covered her body with a blanket and put a pillow over her head because we see that a lot with cases where it's somebody that they're close to. Like, this is his cousin. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, like, he covered her up. I mean, it fits. He's brutal. Like, gosh. Felt remorse. Yeah. Now, there were so many similarities between both these murders. And in the second trial for Andrea, they were actually able to mention the previous murder. I guess in most trials, you can't because during your trial, you're being tried for that one crime and you can't have... What is it? I guess. Um, double jeopardy. Double jeopardy. Double jeopardy. Or you can't like have the drawers misled or think that he could do it because he had a pass yes. or something yeah. like that. You can't use evidence from a different instance. Yeah. But this one, there are so many sentences, um, not sentences, similarities. The ju trial judge found 18 similar. Jesus Christ. The trial judge found 18 similarities to be exact. Thomas was sentenced to death to the death penalty, and Monco district attorney at the time, Bruce Castor, believed Thomas murdered Dawn. He offered to take the death penalty off if he would tell them where her body was, yet Thomas refused to deal and maintain that he was innocent in Dawn's murder. People do look at the profiles of both Thomas's murders that he committed and point out that both girls were in their teens, though when I think about it, Dawn was only registering at 14 years old. So, like, I do want to point that out. Um, both were black. Dawn was not. Both were of the Seventh-day Adventist religion. Uh, with both victims, there was no act of hiding the body, like, at all. He claimed both victims were flirting with him, 
And both victims are students at Pine Forge Academy, where Thomas has attended. Okay, so I guess not too much of this can really line up with Dawn. I mean, other than, like you mentioned, you know, her mental age was um, that teenage state, but... Or he, you know, if he was claiming that this happened, he could potentially claim that she flirted with him, but nothing else would line up because clearly if he did something, the body was hidden and she wasn't a student there. So, yeah. Well, that's what I thought that maybe he mistook her niceness for like flirting. But um, it's true. And I looked at all the other. I mean, there were a lot of things and none, nothing else really lined up with Dawn on the list. Okay at all and really when for karen's murder he immediately admitted for andrea's murder the family had the people over who had seen her that day and he didn't immediately admit to it but he put himself there at the same time of the murder and when they pushed him again he was just like oh well she flirted with me and then admitted so it wasn't like he was like hiding it. So why would he do that for Dawn if he didn't do it for two? Like what? I don't know. Right. I was just going to say that. Why would you go from not hiding a body and saying, yep, I did it to hiding a body. I didn't do it to going back to the same. Like it doesn't it, matter. Progression doesn't. Yeah. 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 So I'm assuming her boyfriend was probably looked into at some point just because they normally look at the significant other. I don't think he was at all. I didn't, in any of the research, I mean, they didn't mention him that often, but he did have developmental delays like Dawn and he was registering at a teenage level as well. And he was actually at Special Olympics. He made it to the practice where she hadn't. And he doesn't have transportation either. So he's also relying on public public transportation. I feel like it'd be harder to like transport a body on a dead body yeah. on a train yeah basically. Right. yeah maybe <laughs> a little bit more difficult him super early so it wasn't really worth reporting on yeah there's not much yeah. about him listed but now i'm thinking about someone carrying a dead body on a train <laughs> no thanks out. thanks amanda well, what about what was the case that we just covered and there was they were found near like all the homeless people near the train oh station. yeah um that's so, true yeah that is true. But I don't think I don't think it was him at all. No. It doesn't sound like it was either of the people we talked about. Mm-mm. And he was the only one listed as a person of interest. And there's still some people that do believe that, you know, it's him, like pretty strongly. Though I I don't think it lines up, honestly, at all. But Dawn is listed as a missing person, and I'm assuming it's because there hasn't been a body found. Police still feel that she is no longer alive. The family desperately wants to give Dawn a proper burial. The family says Dawn is still a big part of their lives. They still talk about her and have her pictures up. Diane says, we march on. Dawn would want it that way. Diane says the police were so communicative and supporting. She's quoted as saying in the beginning, not a week has gone by when someone hasn't talked to me. The support in that way is outstanding. It lets me know in my mind that no one is going to forget about it. Probably one of the greatest fears of any mother is that the people are going to forget. Dawn had brown curly hair, brown eyes. Her ears were pierced and the last clothes she was wearing was a gray skirt, maroon vest, white shirt, and a black bow tie. To provide information, contact the Radnor Township Police Department at 610-688-0050 
or the Delaware County Criminal Investigation Division at 610-891-4700 or Montgomery County CID at 610-278-3339. The family has a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of anyone responsible for her disappearance. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Amanda. Today, we are going to be talking about the basketball legend, Richard Pete. Um, Richard Pete was, by all accounts, a local basketball legend. He was an outstanding member of the 1944 Class A Section 5 championship team and was considered by many as one of the best players to ever attend Beaver Falls High School. He spent two years in the Army, followed by a season with the Harlem Aces basketball team, then later joined the famous Beaver Falls American Legion basketball team, where he won four state championships. He was named to the All-Stars Legion team three times. He was awarded a Sportsmanship Award three times and the MVP of 1950. Like I said, he was a basketball legend. On July 9, 1960, Richard went out to a local hole-in-the-wall tavern with his wife Melva, and her sister Audrey and their friend William. The group was enjoying an evening out when a fight broke out and police arrived. See, the Red Lion Inn had a reputation. It was described as a very dark, low-lit place, so much that when police responded, they would actually have to bring people outside so that they could use the streetlights to identify who they were talking to. There had been other types of issues earlier in the night because the police chief was already at the bar when the dispute erupted. Richard and his wife Melva started arguing around 10.45 that night. Audrey and William were also involved in the argument, and it ended up spilling into the parking lot. As the fight continued, it became clear that Richard had been stabbed in the chest at some point. He was rushed to Providence Hospital and pronounced dead seven and a half hours later at 5.17 in the morning. His official cause of death, according to his death certificate, was cardiac tamponade. What is that? So it's similar to the case of Terry Bowers that we talked about before. Um, Richard had a laceration or a cut to his heart, and the sac around his heart, called the pericardium, can fill up with fluid or blood in other instances. And it basically fills to the point that the heart can't beat effectively anymore. And when that happens, it's not pushing out that oxygenated blood to different organs and stuff. So you go into shock and organ failure, and then you die. All right. It actually says under the described how injury occurred section, stabbed by a family fracas, or in other words, a noisy disturbance or quarrel. Remember, too, that they were talking about the 1960s, so CCTV wasn't available at the time, and they had to rely on eyewitnesses. Okay, so wait a second. So the police chief was there at the bar 
when he was stabbed. Yes, he was. Okay. Was he outside or was he inside? He was outside from what the video shows. And a lot of the information came from um, Beaver County cold cases. They actually have a YouTube, which is kind of cool. And it was some of the information that they released on there, that there was this other disturbance. And so when this disturbance happened, the police were already there. Now, I don't know, like, if they actually saw everything that went on, but he was on the premises when it happened. So police started to investigate immediately, but no one would cooperate. Others actually told them not to. And if they talked to the police, they would know what would happen to them. So this goes back to the kind of place that the red line was described as. One officer said in the police report, and it actually states it, the Red Line Inn was a dirty, low-class tavern, which was the spawning grounds for any and all types of fights, such as the fight that led to the death of the victim in this case. So we aren't really able to get too much information other than it was a crappy bar and nobody really wanted to talk about what happened there. Um, one of the witnesses, uh, her name was Myrtle. She said that I was at the Red Lion Inn. I was one of a, I was, I was in the Red Lion Inn. I was with a fellow. I will tell you that the word has been passed around that all colored people, that if they saw anything to keep your mouth shut and not tell anything. So maybe the root of all the silence was the general distrust of police by the black community. I think it's definitely possible. I was just wondering that if there was a reason for them to distrust, like if there was possible discrimination in the community with the police and the black community. Not that I saw, I mean, given the time frame, I mean, I think that was kind of a lot going on in that time between different races and stuff. Um, I'm kind of leaning towards too, that the type of bar and the constant fighting that maybe they just, you know, they didn't want the police there like biker bars, you know, you don't want police there because there's, you don't know what's really going on. So I think I, I, it could, it's probably a combination between the two. Um, since the police chief was already on scene, he knew that the stabbing had to be one of three people outside, either Richard's wife, Melva, her, his sister-in-law, Audrey, or the friend, William. So they polygraphed all three of them, but they haven't released any of the results to the public. Between the three suspects, there's literally no useful information available to the public. I mean, and honestly, you know, something that we know now in... 2021, a polygraph can't even necessarily point to any one specific thing or another, um, especially when you consider this case when they're looking at his wife, his sister-in-law, and his friend. Um, so, I mean, I doubt that they faked enjoying his company, although they may have, but you would think that these three people, at least at some point, had some element of care for Richard. Um, so when it's someone that you care about that has died and now you're being questioned, your emotions are going to roll through, you know, many different feelings, 
as the questions come and you go through them. And that's going to make your body signals go all over the place. And it might just totally wreck the polygraph results anyway. Um, and nowadays you can't use polygraph in court or anything because they have found um, some of the inconsistencies with it just in some of those more emotionally tense situations. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know why I said, but we can cut the part that I said, but, but. I'm done talking now. So my question is, was the weapon ever found and taken into evidence? Because I always think that if you're, am I stabbing frantically that sometimes when there is blood, the person who's stabbing could slip like, did they have cut on their hand? I mean, now DNA. I, that's what I'm thinking. Um, so later in the investigation, they did find a knife that they think was used that night, but they had no way to prove it. So I don't know if they found it, um, like, in the parking lot or in the bar or um, I'm not quite sure. And I'm not sure how much later in the investigation it was actually found. Um, so of the three, I keep saying, um, so the three suspects, we have Melva, Audrey, and William. Melva and Richard had married, and they actually had a daughter, Emma, who tragically passed away at the age of two from pneumonia, which wasn't too long prior to Richard's death. So I'm kind of leaning towards maybe they were fighting about that or was causing a lot of disruption in the marriage, because I'm sure that, you know, a kid passing away doesn't make things easier. And, um, Melva did actually remarry and have additional kids, but she passed away in 2014. Audrey, um, her sister-in-law passed away in 2010. And that's literally the only thing that I can find on her. Um, and then you have William who was in the military. He was honorably honorably discharged in 1945 he married and had a daughter in 49 and then a son in 57 and he also passed away in 2011 um so there's really nothing on him either i have to wonder if there's some secret that someone knew and maybe threatened to tell or bring to light and that that kind of incited this fight Maybe Richard was the one that knew the secret or he was involved in something. And I kind of think of that the quote that two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Like as soon as two people know a secret, it doesn't stay a secret for long. Um, now, like I can't imagine going out to like our local brewery that we go to often with my husband and a friend and like my brother-in-law and ending up one of us stabbing another one in the street in an argument. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like there's obviously there's a lot that we don't know, but I feel like there's something that maybe was trying to be concealed through this fight and eventual death. Um, so with all three suspects deceased, where do we go from here? Um, like I said before, they found the knife, but they have no way to prove who used it. Um, it makes me think maybe they can try modern testing and see if there's any DNA evidence on that. 
I wonder if that piece of evidence even still exists. I mean, we've seen in previous cases how, you know, since DNA evidence wasn't too much of a thing back then, they weren't as careful in preserving evidence. That's true. And I think even knowing where the knife ended up could help, Um, you know, like, was it laying in the street where they had their fight? Did it end up in someone's yard in a different street? Um, and I, I can't get my brain over the fact that the police chief is right there. I mean, someone's getting stabbed and then later they're saying, well, we might have the, the weapon. How do you not identify the weapon if you're standing there? I mean, obviously I'm not a police officer and I'm not trying to, you know, shame the officer. I'm just trying to understand if you're there at a fight, what what could the perpetrator do to stab someone with a knife but then also conceal it and not be caught in that moment? Sounds a little crooked. Just saying. I think we also have to think, too, like the Terry Bowers case, he was stabbed right next to another Boy Scout and they never found the knife either. So That's true. It's possible. It's not like anything new but it is weird that there's no information on the knife and like where it was found so i feel like it's impossible to even speculate about the suspects without understanding their relationships to each other um from the very limited info that we have it seems like the relationship between richard and his wife had the most potential to be rocky just because of the death of a child like Amanda said, I'm sure it didn't make it any easier. Um, but who knows if that's actually accurate. Well, and didn't you say at one point that the other two were fighting, that Audrey and William ended up in a fight and they were all just maybe kind of in a mood when they went outside? Um, I mean, who's to say the knife wound was intended for Richard? Maybe he stepped between something or... Um, maybe it was a wrong place, wrong time sort of thing. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really say like anything about obviously what they were fighting about or who was fighting with who, except for it started with Richard and his wife. Um, so I don't know if the other two got into it or stepped into their fight. Gotcha. I tried to find photos of the bar to kind of get a better feel for the area, but the Red Lion Inn burned down a few years ago, um, and residents in the area actually tried to delay the fire department by coming to extinguish the flames because they didn't want the bar there anymore. Like, they didn't call 911, and when they did, they tried to stop 911 from coming because they just wanted the bar gone. Well, question for you. Is there, like, is that, like, a problem, like, getting in the way of potentially putting out a fire like especially if there's other <laughs> buildings near it yeah yeah it is I, don't, I mean i don't know what it was back then it is now yeah yeah you can go to jail zero stars on yelp um so the town return refers to the case as who killed dick pete it sounds like a nancy drew novel it does isn't that how all those novels <laughs> were titled like who did whatever or am i just probably making that up i make a lot of things up unintentionally (laughs) okay all right 
1986, 26 years after the murder, Richard was inducted into the Beaver County Sports Hall of Fame for basketball. Anybody that has information that might help finally close this cold case, please call Beaver County DA's office at 724-773-8550 or PA Crime Solvers is offering a $2,000 worth of reward for information leading to the arrest. You can contact them at 724-774-2000. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Need music and production assistance from Darren Megans. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.